you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, we're finally moving into a new chapter. Woo, this is so exciting. Uh, I think this is episode uh, 38, 39, somewhere in there. And uh, so finally we've got out of chapter 1. So this is, this is good. Uh, just as a quick review, <clears throat> uh, chapter 1, we've been walking through the blessing section, which is verses 3 down to verse 14, and talking about the overwhelming blessings that we have in Jesus. Paul then in verse 15 down through verse 19 of chapter 1 is talking about, uh, he's praying for those in Ephesus, and by extension he's praying for us. And he's talking about the fact that there are three key things that he wants you to know and to have. Uh, one is that you would, uh, you would know the hope of his calling. Number two, the riches of his glory, of his inheritance. In verse, uh, in verse 19, number three, is the surpassing greatness of God's power. Now, we were talking about the power of God and the fact that the power of God is overwhelmingly indescribable. And of course, we, we made the statement, if, if the power of God is indescribable, how much more the God behind the power? God is overwhelming. Now you get done with verse 19, and Paul, again, he's using four different Greek words for the word power. He's talking about this overwhelming reality of the power of God. And so you go up to Paul and you say, Paul, can you give me an illustration of what the power of God looks like? What what does it look like being demonstrated? And Paul says, oh, thank you for asking. Let me give you several examples. The first example, which we've been walking through over the last several weeks, uh, goes from verse 20 down to verse 23. And he talks about Jesus as an illustration of the, or a demonstration of the power of God. In other words, here you have Jesus, he's physically dead, he's, he's in the grave, and what did God do? God reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked a physically dead Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life. And if that wasn't good enough, which it would have been, but if that wasn't good enough, he elevated him and put him into the right hand of the Father, seated him right smack dab at the right hand, placed all things beneath his feet, gave him a name above every other name, and now he is the head over the church, which is amazing. Now, Paul says in chapter 2, oh, let me give you another illustration. And the illustration he gives from verse 1 down to verse 10 is us. And as we, as we begin to walk through this, it's an amazing parallel of what God was doing physically in the life of Jesus is what God wants to spiritually do in our lives as believers. So, <clears throat> just for kicks and giggles, since we're into a new section, uh, I would like to read... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, just to get it into our mind. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. What an incredible passage. Paul is saying, hey, just as the Father reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked a physically dead Jesus into physical life and then brought the physically alive Jesus into the heavenly realms and sat him at the right hand of the Father, do you know what he's done in our life spiritually? He's taking us out of our spiritual deadness and raised us out of spiritual deadness and brought us into spiritual life. And if that wasn't good enough, which it would have been, but if that wasn't good enough, he brought us into the heavenly realms, sat a smack dab in in the middle of Jesus, which is at the right hand of the Father. And everything that is now happening in the life of Jesus, the fact that all things come beneath his feet, now get to come beneath my feet because I am in him. Isn't that an amazing thought? That is so good to me. Uh, What I want to look at this morning specifically is verses 1 through 3. And, uh, in fact, we're really just going to look at the first couple of words. And, uh, and we're going to flesh out the rest of those verses next week. But l- look at verse 1 through 3 again. Let me just read them. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and which you once walked according to the course of this world, and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them we also... Once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Uh, Paul is setting up a contrast. He says, let me describe what your life once looked like apart from Christ. And the way he used that is the word death. Now, next week we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and specifically walk through what that death looks like. What is that corruption? Uh, What is that mindset? Uh, What is that lifestyle of death that he's brought us out of? But isn't it interesting that as Paul is setting up the contrast, and he does this several times in Ephesians. uh, He does it here in chapter 2. He does it again in chapter 4. Every time Paul talks about your former living, uh, every time he talks about the way you once lived according to the course of the world, every time he talks about the, the lifestyle that you had apart from Christ, the language Paul uses is death. That, that it, it is dead. And you recognize that death, in one sense, is merely the absence of life. That death, technically, in and of itself, is nothing. It's not, it doesn't have any substance to it. It's merely the lack of something. It's almost like... Uh, darkness is actually not anything. It's really the absence of light. And death is, is very similar in that sense. Uh, some translations, if you have a uh, King James or a New King James, uh, verse 1 says, And you he made alive, which were once dead. And you'll probably notice that if you have one of those translations, the he made alive uh, is probably in italics, uh, which tells you it actually is not in the original language, uh, but they put it in there for just for clarity and for emphasis. But isn't it interesting that Paul is, again, he's setting up a contrast, saying, this isn't who you are now, this is who you once were. In other words, this should not be describing your life right now. And if this describes your life right now, then the reality is, is you need to be made alive because you're dead. So this isn't a, well, this is how Christians live. They, they live according to the course of the world. They live corrupted. They live in the lust of the flesh. They live, that's actually not Christian living. Christian living is, that was me back in the day. But as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, there's been a line drawn in the sand, and who I once was is no longer who I currently am. 
In fact, the, the shift has been so significant that the, the only language we can use is this idea of new creature kind of stuff. That, that God has done such a work in my life that he's brought me out of this way of living. He's now changed and transformed me. I'm now in this reality. And though I may look the same and I may smell the same, I am not the same. That the internal reality, the, the spiritual in depth of my being is completely different. Uh, l- listen to what uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, if you want to know the greatness of God's power, you've got to realize the depth of sin You've got to realize the problem which confronted God. You've got to realize the problem that confronts you. In other words, we have a problem as humanity. Well, what's the problem? Deadness. Sin. That that we were all born in this corrupted state. And you could say, thank you, Adam and Eve. But the reality is, is you don't have to blame them. Because your life has has enough junk on its own outside of them, that, that we just live in this propensity of sin. We live in this hardness of heart. We just live in this corruption. We live, and we're going to walk through that next week. But we just live according to the course of this world. And we have made choices individually to shake our fist in God's face and live in rebellion. Now, you know the verses, but like, you know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. That's depressing, you know? But none of us are good enough. In fact, I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6. He says, even our best attempts at righteousness. I mean, the best I can pull off. I mean, the best that I can produce out of my own ability, my own wisdom, my own strength, is still filthy rags. And we're not going to get into that, but if you want to look up an awkward study, look at what filthy rags actually means. Because it's not just like, you know, I was cleaning and dusting over here, and I now have a filthy rag. It's like, whoo, that's not what, Paul, uh, that's not what Isaiah is talking about. But you can stay that up. You recognize that the best that I can do will never measure up. It is never good enough. The best that I can produce is still only death. So I have a problem. And what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is, when you begin to understand the extremity of sin and the problem that is confronting God and us, it actually shows the marvelous reality of his power. Again, Paul's talking about the power of God being demonstrated. That the power of God is working itself in your life. Well, how? He brought you out of death and brought you into life. That is amazing when you begin to think about it. That, that death, which is the opposite of life, is, is the only way to define my life. And what, what has God done? He actually brought an end to death, which produces life. I'm going to mention this later, but this is such a cool thought I've been meditating upon. We know that when life is killed, it produces death. But God somehow found a way to kill death so he could produce life. Does that make any sense? In other words, here we are full of death. Sorry. Physically, we're full of life, right? We have biology. We We have life. We're breathing. And when that is killed, we call that death. But spiritually, we're born in death. And God found a way to get rid of death. He killed death and brought forth life. That's a great thought to me. Do you realize that throughout all of Scripture, God's agenda is life? One of my favorite scholars uh, is Sandy McConaughey, uh, who obviously works here. (laughs) But Sandy McConaughey, the great scholar, says, and I, I love her statement, she says, if you were to summarize the entirety of God's purpose in one word, she says, I would choose life. 
that what is God doing throughout Scripture? Life. What, what, what did Jesus come to bring? Life. Well, what is he wanting to do in you? Life. And yet Paul says there's a problem in each of us. We're full of death. And yet God's agenda is life. So just sit back and listen to this. I, I just want to give you a picture just from the book of John of this idea of life. John specifically is obsessed with this idea of life and light. The fact that God is light, he is life. And in his gospel, and in the book of 1 John specifically, and even in the book of Revelation, there's this constant declaration of God is light. God is life. He is love. Which means all the stuff that we are, you know, we're full of darkness, we're full of death, which means we, we've been separated from him. But yet, what is his agenda? To take his very life and produce it, push it in you, you. Why did Jesus come on the cross? Oh, it is so that he could get rid of the sin nature so that you could have life. So just, and the, I just, I didn't pick them all. Just, I just went through the book of John and just picked out a few verses on this idea of what John says about life and the person of Jesus. So, so just listen to these. John 1, 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Isn't that interesting how John Amelie's tying the very beginning of his gospel, this idea of life and light. That Jesus himself is both the life and the light. And it is his life that is producing the light for humanity. Why? Because humanity is full of darkness and death, and Jesus is the solution. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not have death, but what? Have everlasting life. Now we know, and by the way, the the word life in this passage and on these passages is not the biology life, right? In Greek, uh, the language the New Testament was written in, Right? There, there's, there's several words for life. One is the word bios. It's the idea of biology. So right now, you breathe. That's biology, right? That we have a physical life. But when Jesus talks about the fact of everlasting life or eternal life, this idea that, hey, I've come to bring life and life abundant, that idea, that word is the word zoe or zoe, Z-O-E. That word in, in the Greek doesn't have to do with the biology. It has to do with the the essence, the flow. Uh, the, the best illustration that I know of is uh, you look at a power cord, and this power cord is connected from a lamp uh, to the socket. The bios is the cord. It's the wire. It's, it's what we can physically grab a hold of. It's, you look at it and say, oh, yep, that, that's the wire. Right? You, 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 know, you, you pinch your neighbor and say, oh, bi- biology, right? Bios. Zoe, or zoe, is, is the electrical current flowing from the outlet, the power source, to the lamp. You can't grip that, you can't see that, but it is actually the essence, the source, the substance of the life itself. So the wire is the biology, but what is flowing through the wire is the zoe. It's that the essence, the substance. Jesus says, hey, you may have biology, but you are actually in death if you don't have the zoe. That you are an electrical current, unless you plug yourself into the power source known as God, and his Holy Spirit is flowing through your life, you do not have life. Yeah, you may have biology, but you don't have life in the sense of Zoe. And so what did Jesus come to bring? He didn't come to bring bios. You have that. What did he come to bring? 
the power source, the essence, the, the substance of how you were supposed to live, the life itself. And yes, there is going to come a point when your biology is going to die. I mean, look in the mirror. Your biology is getting worse. I mean, I hate to break that to all of us, but, you know, at least for some of us, right? I mean, it's just, you look in the mirror, it's just, ah, oh, bios, right? But in the middle of looking at your bios and the fact that your bios is going downhill as you get older, hey, your, your zoe should be increasing. And we understand that there is coming a day when God is going to resurrect the bios, that there's going to be a resurrected body. What that looks like, I have no idea, but I know we get to eat because Jesus and his resurrected body got, got to eat, so <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's going to be food. It's going to be a big banquet in heaven. It's a promise in scripture. I'm holding tight to it. Anyway, let's keep going. <clears throat> Being distracted by food. <clears throat> Does that make sense? In other words, we have biology. That's not what Jesus is saying that he's, br- he's coming to bring for eternal life. The eternal life that he's bringing is the, that inside life stuff that carries the biology. That is supposed to produce the, the source, the current, the that is what he's coming to bring. And he says in John 3, 26, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 5, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come unto judgment, but is passed from death unto life. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. John six thirty three. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, you know who I am? I am the bread of life. I am that which gives life. Uh, John six forty seven through 53. I'll just read a little selection of this, but... He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Uh, John 10.10, Jesus says, hey, the, the, the enemy, the thief, has come only to still kill and destroy. But I have come, woo, get this, that you may have life. And not just life, but more abundant life. And again, we looked at this in the, one of the previous I am statements that we were going through, but that word abundant is this idea of surpassing over the top, great. It's, it, is, it is like the superlative of superlative kind of lives, uh, which is amazing. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, He's going to live, which is awesome. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Isn't it interesting that as you're walking through specifically John's writings, his big agenda is that you would understand Jesus is the life itself. He doesn't give you life. He is the life. And that's completely different. That he doesn't just give you joy. He is your joy. He doesn't give you peace. He is your prince of peace. That it's not he's just doling out these little, you know, pills called life and joy and peace. And 
that he is that himself. Uh, when you go into Romans, it's interesting, Paul makes this grand argument, the fact that you are dead, that we have sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God, and we need a rescuer. L- listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 4 and verse 23. He says, Therefore we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. It's going back to that concept of our passage. Here's a physically dead Jesus, and what did the Father do? He reached in, into the physical deadness of Jesus and brought a physically dead Jesus into physical life. He says, do you know what is happening in your life? You are dead spiritually, and so the Father is coming into your spiritual life and bringing you from spiritual death into spiritual life. That just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too you and I are to walk in the newness of life. We're not talking physically, though there is a resurrection in the future. We're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually. But then listen to the statement in verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you ever thought about what what it means when Paul says the wages of sin is death? Do you know what wages are? It's what you demand after working for something. Right? You're down at your job, and you've worked a couple of weeks. You go up to your boss and say, hey, look, I demand my wages. Where, where, hey, where's my paycheck? Because, hey, I've done all this work. And because of all this work, hey, I should, as, as a result of that, get wages. Do you realize that sin has wages? That when, when I participate in sin and when I indulge in sin, there is a demand that happens in my life. That, hey, if you want to participate in sin, fine, go ahead and do that. But recognize that just as you demand your paycheck at the end of your pay period, so too sin demands a wage. And what is the wage that sin always gives? Ah, death. So this isn't like, well, can I have sin without the death? No, no. You don't don't get that option. Because the reality is the moment you begin to participate in sin, the result of sin is death. There is a wage to sin. There is a payment of sin. And what is that payment? It is death. But, Paul says, the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. That here is Christ. He steps into the midst of death, and he literally breaks the chains of death and that payment, so now the payment, the wages of sin, is no longer death. You've been forgiven of that so that you may walk in the newness of life. Do you know what God has done in his marvelous power and love? He has brought us out of death and brought us into life. And I think for whatever reason, we as Christians who have grown up in the church, we forget that. And yet it is one of the most marvelous realities of the gospel is that we who were once dead are now alive. And that life, you got to get this, life is not something outside of a person. It is the person. Life isn't just something that he gives us. It's himself. In other words, the, the reality of life is intimacy with Jesus. In other words, death if I can say maybe this way, death then is anything outside of Jesus. In other words, if he is, uh, look at the John 14, 6 thing. If he is the way, the truth, and the life, that means that if you are on any other path but Jesus, you're, you're out. 
If he is truth, then anything outside of him is going to be a lie. It may be even factual, but the moment I begin to build my life upon it, I begin to find it's actually a lie. Is it true that if I give my entire mind and my life to the pursuit of money, that I'll get money? Probably. But as I, as I pursue success according to the world's standards, what I find is, though it may be factually true, it's actually a lie. Because what I was looking for all along, truth, is not that, it's a person. So how do I experience truth in my life? Embrace the person. Oh, if Jesus is life, then anything outside of Jesus is death. And anytime I build my life and set my life on anything other than Jesus, I actually find that that produces death in my life. Why? Because it's not the person. Uh, if you go back to the John 17, 3 thing, this is eternal life, says Jesus. Oh, it's to do a lot of religious activities. <laughs> no. This is your life. This, this is eternal life. Go to church. No. I mean, yeah, go to church. Do religious activities. But that's not what life is. What is life? Intimacy with God himself. This is eternal life that they might know, intimately experience, and know the God of the universe. Do you realize that life is not religion? It's intimacy. I, I, again, it's that John 17, 3 thing. It's, that it's not, it's not checking off a whole bunch of things on a list and say, oh, I now have life. Why? Because I did the religious checklist. That's, that's not life. That's legalism. What is life? It is experiencing the person who is life. Uh, I love what Jesus says to the Pharisees in, in Matthew. Matthew 23, he walks up to the Pharisees. And of course, you know the Pharisees. They, they've been memorizing scripture since they were a kid. They're in these long, beautiful robes. You know, they, they have these big phylacteries you know, on, on their head, on their, on their armband. And he looks at and hey, these guys are so, they're so intense about following the law. They have all the religious activities. They have all the religious regulations. They have all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And you know what the word woe means, right? Woe is when you, when you hear the, what is going to be said, you say, woe. Okay, that was bad. But that, that, is, that is kind of the idea. It's like, whoa, that's intense, right? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now listen to, these. listen to Jesus. He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs. He says, yeah, you're like whitewashed tombs. He's actually talking about the, the stuff down in Jerusalem. Uh, there's all these old prophets down, down near Jerusalem who were buried. And, of course, during the big festivals, everyone comes to Jerusalem. And so, hey, while we're there, you know, it's like if you're in Southern California, you might as well go to Disneyland. You're there, right? Go to SeaWorld in San Diego and go to the, go to the zoo and then go to Disney World or Disneyland. <clears throat> and so, hey, you're, you're, you're in Jerusalem. You might, you might as well take all the touristy sites. And so you take your kids and you go over to the tomb and you say, hey, this is where this prophet, remember that prophet we read about? Yeah, this is where he's buried. And you're like, whoa. <clears throat> so what the Pharisees used to do is they would go down there and they would whitewash the outsides of the, of the tombs. So that as, as the tourists go over, they go, wow, that's a great-looking tomb. And Jesus says, you know what you guys are? You guys are like whitewashed tombs. He goes on and says, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here you are doing all the religious activities. Here you are, you look really spiritual. Here you are, you never miss a day at church. But all you are, you have this facade. You look really great, but you're full of deadness. 
He says, you don't have life. In fact, you, all you have is death, even though you have all the, all the law, even though you have all the, the legalism, even though you have all the rituals. Do you recognize that life doesn't come from the rituals? Life comes from the person. Uh, Jesus in John 5 <clears throat> looks at that same group of people, and he says, hey, you search the scriptures. Hey, you, you've been diving into the word. You've been memorizing this thing. In fact, uh, at age 5, they begin to memorize the five books of Moses. By the age of 12, they typically had almost the entirety uh, of, sorry, they had, they had the entirety of the five books of Moses memorized, Genesis through Deuteronomy. By the age of, like, by, the, by late teens, you'd have the entirety of the Old Testament memorized word for word, these scholars. Could you imagine? <laughs> We're not doing so hot, are we? But he looks at this group of people and says, hey, you are searching the scriptures. Hey, you, you're in this thing, for in them you think you have eternal life. But Jesus says, these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So you're, you're coming to the book thinking that you're going to have life, and what you've actually found is you have information. You, hey, you have law, you have legalism, but you don't have the life. Because life isn't religion. Life is relationship. Uh, presuming that religion gives life is like that cheesy illustration of thinking that just because you come to church, you're a Christian. Coming to church makes you no more a Christian than you going into your garage makes you a car. Or you, a mouse falling into a cookie jar makes the mouse a cookie. Right? That, I love Corey Ten Spoon illustration on that. But it's, it, see, it doesn't change the nature stuff. You're, it's a mouse in a cookie jar. It's a person in a garage. It's, it's someone in a church. Well, religion doesn't produce life. Jesus is the one who is life. So if I want to have life, I have to have intimacy and relationship with him. So come back into our passage. Paul says, hey, you were once dead. Hey, here you are, spiritually dead. God has a huge problem. You have a huge problem. There's a corpse. In fact, I love this. When in, in Ephesians 2, 1, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The word they're dead in the Greek literally means corpse. God has a corpse on his hand. That there's all these spiritually there all these spiritual corpses who, who are full of trespasses and sins. So what is God gonna do? How is God gonna deal with this situation? And Paul says it's not even that. I mean, yeah, that's that's huge. God has corpses, we're full of trespasses and sins. But as he begins to flesh that out in verses two and three, you begin to recognize that, you know what, this, this is a ma massive problem in our life. Uh, in chapter four, when Paul begins to Go through that again about the old and the new, new life. L listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, the same idea of the deadness. <clears throat> he says in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17, Therefore I say and testify in the Lord that now on you are not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the foolish stupidity of their minds or the vanity of their minds having their understanding darkened, excluded from the life of God through the ignorance that is within them, doomedness to the hardness of their hearts. They were calloused and given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn about Christ in that manner. Paul says, do you, know, you realize the only way we can describe our life outside of Jesus is dead. We, we are corpses. We're, we're, we're lifeless. But what has God done? Oh, Jesus came, died upon the cross, so that we may have 
life. And again, I've just been pondering this last few days. I just love this idea that physically we're alive, and if we are killed, we have death. But spiritually we are dead, so God came and killed death spiritually, which produced life. I think that's amazing. That somehow God has a way of destroying death. We see physically that death is the final. God sees death is not the end. In fact, spiritually, God had to deal with the death so that you might have life. And we are to walk in this newness of life. Now, next week, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 specifically and walk through the elements of what it means to be dead, which is pretty miserable. But can I just mention, I think one of the, we're going to look at this in two weeks from now, but in verse 4, perhaps two of the greatest words in all of Scripture are found. But God. You realize that Paul is setting up a contrast, and he says, hey, let me describe your life outside of Jesus. And for three verses, he's talking about the fact that you are dead, that you are a corpse, that there's full of trespasses and sin and, and lust and greed and disobedience and corruption and just you are, you are so just turned within yourself and you're all twisted inside. And in the middle of that, Paul steps in and makes this phenomenal statement, but God. Isn't that encouraging? Hey, my life is full, just full of junk. Yeah, but but God, yeah, but you don't understand my addiction. I mean, I understand your addiction, but I know my God, but God. Do you realize what God wants to do in your life is a but God? That he actually wants to step into your life and whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever the challenges you're facing, he wants to be the but God in your life that just changes whatever it is, the junk that we're dealing with and brings forth life. That God is dealing with a whole bunch of dead people. And God is looking out and he says, I see dead people. Literally. That there's all these corpses on my hand. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the, ex- the farthest extent possible. And I'm going to get myself so that they may have life, which is me. So that I can deal with the sin problem. So that I can cleanse them of that sin nature. So that I can set them as they're supposed to be. So I can actually fill them with myself, called the Holy Spirit. So that they may have life. So practically. Here's a question for you. Are you dead or are you alive? Not physically. But spiritually, are you dead or alive? Are you still walking around as a spiritual corpse? Are you still just still living with the same junk and the same propensities and the same... And I understand the sanctification process is lifelong. <laughs> I do understand that. But you realize that he wants to change your nature. He, he wants to draw a line in the sand and bring you from what you once were into who he wants you to be, which is a person filled with him Marked by life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He has produced life. And maybe just a second question is not only are, are you dead or alive, but has your heart been stirred for the deadness of other people? It's interesting. It seems like one of the ways that we know that we're actually alive is that we are more attuned to the deadness of other people. That, that our hearts break over the reality of people being dead around us. That when we look at the spiritual condition of those in, in, our, in our life, their spiritual deadness should be driving us to our knees. 
And we should be crying out to God saying, God, you've, you've got to bring forth, hit them over the head with a two-by-four so that they would wake up and recognize that you are their solution and that they need you. So not only am I dead or alive, or do I have dead aspects in my life, but do the, does the spiritual deadness of the people around me cause me to press even more into Jesus so that the people around me would also experience the life that you and I have the privilege of experiencing? I want that. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are good. Lord, thank you that we do not have to live according to the course of this world. That we don't have to have the, the foolish mindset that the world has. That we don't have to have the corruption, the twistedness, the, the greedy, lust-filled realities of how humanity just naturally lives. That we can experience the but God in our life where a line has been drawn in the sand and you've done such a deep work in our life that we really are a new creation in you. And Lord, I pray that if we have not fully experienced life or if we've been looking for life somewhere else in, in religious activities or religious duty or showing up to church, memorizing scripture, Lord, I pray that you would convict us that life is found in nowhere else but you. That life is not religion, it's relationship. That you are life itself. And you want to indwell my life through the Holy Spirit so that your life becomes my life. And Lord, I pray that you would burden our hearts for the people around us. Lord, I pray that in this, this generation we would ex see and experience a mighty movement of you through revival. That we would see the corpses of this world raised to life like Ezekiel saw this plain full of dead men's bones, that somehow the bones would come together, that, that sinew would come upon the bones, and that there would be breath breathed within them, and that we would once again see life in the midst of death. Because you are it. Lord, thank you that you have brought us from death unto life. You've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your dear Son. Lord, thank you that what Paul says here that we once were dead, it does not have to be a current reality of us. It was just a past part of our life that you have radically changed. Lord, we want life. We want life to the fullness because you are life itself. Lord, let us live in that reality today. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We're so thankful for all that you have done and are doing in us through us as you continue to produce life. You are so good. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.